I have no evidence for this, but I think my flicking technique will, <laughs> will cause less of a problem because I'm very practiced at it. Welcome to the Aesthetics Mastery Show. I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Hi, I'm Miranda Pierce. And today we've got a new complication for you. Well, it's not a new complication, but it's probably one you haven't heard of because I only heard about it quite recently. So I'm excited to bring it to you. And it's all about a new botulinum toxin side effect and possibly a dermophilus side effect. And you'll find out why it could be either as we go into the details. So what is this new complication? But before we dive in, Give us a like if you've got faith you're going to learn something from this episode and I will do my absolute best to deliver. So um, this is a side effect described in the paper that I found this on, which is a paper I recommend checking out. It is by Dr. Marina Landau et al. Um, and in this paper, they describe it as morphia-like lesions. So morphia is uh, localized areas of scleroderma. If you've ever seen scleroderma in a patient, it's tightening of skin. Um, I always remember the first patient I ever saw in clinical medicine had scleroderma and it really shocked me because I'd never seen it before then. So it's always stuck in my head. But areas of localized tightening, it's got an immuno immunological basis. So the immune system is causing an inflammatory response that causes this tightening. And uh, Marina has described it in this paper as localized areas of scleroderma, or it looks like that effectively. And what this means to your patient is a dent. They get a dent in their forehead. And it's thankfully rare, but I've seen certainly seen some cases and um, I have seen them on forums and I've had one patient myself many years ago with the same issue. So how does this complication evolve then? So the case that I had um, fitted very well with what uh, Dr. Landau has described in her papers, which is a, an initial good res result to a botulinum toxin treatment. And then about a week after the follow-up, the one I remember, it was about three weeks after I first saw the patient, she developed this little depression. It looks a little bit like a thumbprint, um, just an indentation on the forehead. Um, now, in the case studies that D Dr. Marina Landa has shared, there are three case studies. And one of them, the dent arrived after a week. And the other one, it was about two weeks. And the third one was three weeks after the procedure. So all of them are quite soon after the procedure, but at, at different points along the treatment cycle. So what do we think is actually causing this? So the first time I saw a case, I thought, well, what are the first principles involved here? And one of the, I, you know, I love first principle thinking. It is basically thinking. But if you haven't got the first principles in place, you will get the answer wrong. That's the danger with it. So from a first principle approach, I thought I'm injecting botulinum toxin. There's some albumin, there's some uh, some lactose, but there's not that much in it that I can imagine causing an indentation. I assumed it might be localized muscle atrophy. Maybe the dose was a bit stronger or maybe it would be an area of muscle tension because obviously when you treat with botulinum toxins, you get areas of higher muscle tension and lower tension. And perhaps there was a, a degree of contractility that was making the skin look different and I was really racking my brains to try and think of how something that's supposed to relax muscle could cause an indentation and, and that was as close as I got in fact what I ended up doing was topping up the patient and two or three weeks later she said that her indentation had resolved so that almost fed back into my idea that it was to do with some sort of muscle tension but I think I was wrong um, now that I've discovered this paper so th th that's a lot of what other people have discussed as well in the literature when when you look at the reasons why there might be an indentation it's ideas like that um, but I think there's probably a better description which we're going to get to. Okay so what's actually happening? So the new idea to me, um, it's not actually a new idea, but it's not something I've ever come across before, which is in all of these syringes that we use, they actually use a small amount of silicon oil to lubricate the syringe. So to make it easier 
to push. There's a, there's a little bit of oil. And it, the theory would be that if you get the wrong size drop of silicon oil injected into the skin, that you get a local foreign body reaction and you get an indentation as a result. So that's the theory. So are you saying that this oil is within the mechanism of the syringe, nothing to do with the actual what you're going to, supposed to be putting in the syringe, but it's somehow leaking into the barrel? Or Well, the, the theory is that this tiny amount of oil that is inside most of the syringes that we use, and of course, you can't actually know for sure which syringe is in and how much, because I don't think it's the kind of thing they include on product literature. But there is a, a lubricant designed to make it easier to push the plunger and perhaps even as, as a way of keeping the plastic separate to the products. I'm not sure. I, I'm sure there's some very good reasons for it. But these small amounts of oils, there are things we can do clinically that can make the situation worse because you can d basically dislodge oil from the sides of the syringe in various ways that we might treat our syringes that may increase the chance of this problem happening. And that's where it might be useful to know about it. So what I'm intrigued. Like, What made them think that this oil was the factor and not the muscle as you did? So I, I think um, there's a bit more data on this from other fields in medicine, as is often the, the case if you work in a different field, you have a, a completely different um, idea of what the, what the factors are. And certainly in ophthalmology, there are cases where these silicon oils are actually visible. So the patient gets a, a, a disturbance in their vision and you can actually look and see the retina and see this tiny little bubble of oil floating around. We have a, a reference which will drop into the YouTube channel, which will show you that. And there's some interesting images on it. So it, that's a specialty where you can actually see see what you're injecting because mm. it, it stays separate to what you'd normally expect in, in the in the vitreous humor. Um, and there's also a paper all the way back down to 1985 where they were getting inflammatory rea reactions with insulin needles. And that was suggested then. So the, the, the concept that these lubricants are a potential risk is not new. What is new is that we haven't really thought about that as a cause of complications in medical aesthetics. Because I think it's fair to say this industry is relatively new, isn't it? You know, we, we've only been going for a few decades, so we are going to discover these kinds of things. Yeah, I think these things are also quite siloed. Like there, there's a whole industry who design syringes and think about this stuff all the time and they have their own journals, but we don't look in those journals. Yeah. So, you, you know, you have to, you have to go, go looking for it and you find these interesting other ideas. So Using first principles. Yeah. Okay, so why is this quite rare? Why are we not experiencing these dents frequently? So I think you've got to be a little bit unlucky, um, but it's also down to the, the amount and the size of the silicon droplets. So one of the other interesting ideas is that if these little droplets are too small or too big, they don't get into the macrophages and cause a granuloma type reaction. Because that's really what we're worried about is that the immune system is reacting, causing localized inflammation and, and atrophy of the tissues. And that creates a fair, that needs quite a lot of, of activity. And very small um, silicon oils seem to not cause a response and the larger droplets also don't cause a response. So um, it's really the wrong size droplet that's the problem. How can practitioners try and help and avoid this problem? So uh, there are many factors that could be contributing to the reactivity of these particles and also the size and distribution of these particles. And um, I think uh, one way to think of it is if you did very little to your syringe, the distribution would be quite narrow, the spectrum of particle size, and most of them would be hopefully too small to cause a problem uh, or too large and therefore basically stay on the wall of the syringe. So um, there, there's something about how we treat the syringe, but also the products that we put into the syringe could affect it. So I found a really interesting letter in the American Academy of Dermatology from Bruno Mikulis-Leems. I hope I'm saying that name correctly. 
And um, what they what they did is test how you, the, the degree of agitation that you used uh, on your syringes. So people who shake and flick their syringes. I'm one of them. I flick my syringe. Um, but also the, the products that are mixed into the actual syringe and how that affected the distribution of these silicon oils. And what they discovered is um, it really interestingly and useful for our sector in particular is that bacteriostatic saline seems to get more of the silicon oil off the wall of the syringe and put it into the solution. It's not a, a world apart, but there's a difference there. So there's now that's interesting because most of the drug companies, when they tell you how to mix up your botulinum toxins, they will say use normal saline, not bacteriostatic saline. And it didn't ever seem to me like there would be a potential downside to that, to actually using what we all do, which is use the less painful version. Mm-hmm. But now there is a, something to think about. Now, I don't think, you know, I've seen one in 12 years and I've used bacteriostatic saline the whole time. So we're not dealing with a very high risk thing. But it's interesting for those who, who will face this, that they, they can at least, you know, it's, it's information to think mm. about, about how you make your clinical decisions. Um, I'm not advocating for a big change all of a sudden, but uh, it's useful to know. The other thing they discovered is that um, products that dissolve fat, so that's the deoxycholic acid injectables, they, they pull quite a lot of the silicon oil off. So you may have an increased risk of local reactions due to that. Um, and, and as I said, the shaking and agitation is a big factor. That, no matter what, your, your solvent seem to cause more of these silicon oil droplets to be present, as you'd expect. Why do you flick the syringe? So you flick the syringe because if you have a, a tiny bubble uh, inside the syringe and you inject, it acts like a pressure reservoir. So as you're squeezing, you're trying to inject um, your product into the skin. The skin is higher pressure than than the atmosphere, which is what the pressure is in that bubble. So you, instead of injecting, you compress the bubble. Then as you release, you, you squirt your expensive botulinum toxin on the surface okay. of the skin. So you want to get the bubbles out. Um, but you can do that in a, in a range of ways. Because I, I often, when, you know, when we're training someone on day one of injecting, they flick it like a donkey, you know. <laughs> and when you get good at it, you just skim the edge. It actually works better. So there's some practice to just skim the edge of the syringe and it just causes a little tiny shudder rather than the whole thing shaking around. So I have no evidence for this, but I think my flicking technique will, <laughs> will cause less of a problem because I'm very practiced at it. Um, but, you know, you do need to get rid of the bubbles. I'm not saying we should never flick a syringe, but just try and do it as little as possible. It's that kind of approach, I think, at the moment. So is it just a case of these wrong size droplets? It seems to be the main thing that people talk about. And we know that silicon on its own can cause foreign body reactions, which is why we don't tend to use it as a permanent filler, which it was used. But there was another publication I thought was interesting from the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences, which seemed to, in animal models, detect that some sort of interaction with protein and silicon seems to increase the reactivity. So um, that's just another idea to think about, that if you're injecting things that are protein-based, which botulinum toxin is, perhaps there's a higher chance of that reacting than other molecules because of some interplay between these these structures. So um, I don't don't think that all the details are understood, but it's it's yet another factor just showing how complex this is. You know, you Mm -hmm. think it's simple, and actually you've got this chemistry going on that that we we don't fully understand is there anything else that we can do to avoid this well at the moment there is this trend uh, which i've done as well so no judgment but using bd syringes to inject dermal filler now this would imply that that there could be an additional risk and particularly with fillers delayed onset nodules are are much more of a problem than with filler it may not cause the indentation 
but you may be it's possible that there could be a link with delayed onset nodules and you and switching syringes if the silicon oil is more of a problem in bd syringes or more of an additive than in the filler syringes now this is an, a question not advice because i have no idea what is in the filler syringes and i have no idea how much is in the bd syringes and i also don't know whether delayed onset nodules with filler is triggered by silicon oil being mixed in but it's certainly an area where we're, 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 I would say we're increasing the, the list of unknowns by switching into an insulin syringe. So it's the kind of thing would be great to study, like, but how are we ever going to get that much data? You'll need a, a few hundred thousand people who only use BD syringes to, to share their data with those of us who only use the, the normal filler syringes and see if there's a change in delayed onset nodules. It'd be very hard to find out. Um, but but it, it seems to be at least logical that there could be a connection. Give us a practical tips for how we can avoid this risk? Uh, so the most important thing is to do as little as possible to your actual syringe, because we have to inject with something. We're all going to be using BD syringes for, for botulinum toxin, I'm sure, for the foreseeable future. So treat it more delicately. Um, one thing, probably the worst thing you can do, which I was initially trained to do, and I thought was great, and I've actually showed people this because I thought it was quite clever and nice. New injectors often don't like the inertia that you get. So if you're pushing and the syringe is moving and then it suddenly gives, that causes, you know, you feel a bit out of control. Now, when you've been injecting for years, you, you don't notice that. You have better dexterity. But um, I used to do this thing of wearing the rubber slightly. Mm -hmm. So as I pulled off, you'd warm it up slightly, in and out a couple of times, and it makes it easier to flow. That's probably the worst thing you could do. And maybe in those days was when I got my first little indentation, morphia-like lesion. That could have been caused by that little practice, which I no longer do, thankfully. But that would be the kind of thing I'd like injectors to be aware of is that there, there is this potential to increase complexity by doing something that you don't need to actually do. Um, and of course, the next thing is the degree of flicking, moving, shaking, uh, try and just be delicate with your syringes and that will help protect you. Um, mixing new things in increases the uncertainty. I, I mean, I, I just don't know how each of these things work, but potentially the bacteriostatic saline at least shows you that there is, uh, there is going to be a difference with different solvents. And you might not, not want to haphazardly increase the complexity unless you're getting a very clear benefit for your patient, um, which simultaneously does make you think if, if you on a normal day get the same result with the filler as it comes from the syringe, then why put it into a BD syringe? Um, because if, you, if you're very clear that you get clear benefit for that, I'm not saying the risk is high enough that we shouldn't do it, but I'm just saying take that into your decision-making process. Keep things simple is, is a good rule of thumb generally. Uh, if it doesn't make a clear benefit to your patient. So if you want to check out the original publications, they are all listed in the YouTube description below. Um, I recommend you check check them out, particularly the ones with images. If you want to see what silicon oil floating across your retina looks like, there is a link in the description down below. And please do subscribe to the channel and switch on the notifications because you don't want to miss any more of these amazing kind of clinical insights. And drop us a comment if you've experienced this, this actual side effect yourself. Thanks for watching. Take care. Bye.